Welcome to the Know, Like, and Trust show with Brittany Gardner, the podcast where we explore the world of personal branding and how to build your know, like, and trust factor up for ultimate business success. And now here's your host, Brittany Gardner. Hey everyone, today I'm going to be talking with Ravi Crabtree about performative speaking and how you can use storytelling to not only make your case, but to actually increase calls to actions and sales off anything that you are putting out there from Facebook Lives to emails. Before we jump into the interview, I want to read this review from D. DiNardo on Apple Podcasts. They say, Brittany does an amazing job at getting concrete about how to build your personal brand. Do yourself a favor, take notes, and take action based on her expertise. Highly recommend. All right, cool. I love that review, not only because, of course, it's very complimentary about this show, but it makes a point about taking action. My goal is that every time, especially when we have guests on the show, they give three concrete things you can take away and do in your business. Actually take action with and use the information that you invested time in hearing on the show. That is what I always recommend. If you're going to take the time to listen to a podcast, don't do it just to kill time. Actually learn and apply what we're talking about. And I think today's episode is the perfect example of that because Robbie Crabtree is going to be telling how he started to realize performative storytelling, performative speaking is such a key way to build your know, like, and trust factor. Robbie Crabtree has worked as a trial lawyer on over 100 high-profile trials, along with teaching persuasive speaking and coaching the National Mock Trial Team at Southern Methodist University Law School. He's coached leaders at Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Reddit to develop their speaking ability. He's the founder of Performative Speaking as part of his speaking philosophy. He also runs a live online speaking school to teach people these skills. He lives in Dallas with a 15-year-old golden retriever, Roxy. And today we are going to be listening to him and how he came to realize the value of storytelling. On with the interview. All right, Robbie, welcome to the No Like and Trust Show. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. This is amazing. I am really excited to talk with you because I get a lot of pitches for the show and you know our audience will recall on a few occasions me ranting a little bit about the quality of the pitches, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about what you're going to talk about from the angle in which you're going to talk about it. So why don't you first, before we go there, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure thing. So I think it really started when I was in the last trial that I was in. And it was a murder trial where I thought my client, I was actually on the defense side at that time. I really believe that he had acted in self-defense. And while we're going through this, obviously, he was facing life in prison. And I was arguing on his behalf to try to keep him out of there so he could take care of his spouse, his stepson, his family. And it was already a tragedy because his brother had been shot and killed by him. But again, like I said, I believed it was self-defense. And it ended up being what I would consider my most successful closing argument that I ever delivered. It ended up with him being able to go home, where the jury did not find him guilty of murder, did not send him to prison, and he got to continue to take care of his family. And that was actually in February of this year. So it was the last trial before COVID really took over. But it was in that moment that I realized, hey, there's really this incredible power in our words. And if we can use them correctly and use them powerfully. We have the opportunity to change lives, to influence the world around us. 
And I said, there's, there's a better way to, to help people because I was already teaching persuasive speaking at the SMU Law School. I was already coaching the National Mock Trial Team there. But I said, I want to take this to a much bigger audience because I had only done some coaching kind of behind the scenes. And I said, there's a way to take the 102 trials that I've been in, whether they were murders, child abuse cases, whatever it was, and translate that to a bigger audience so that they can use the skills that I've developed over the last 10 years of my career as a trial lawyer and use them, whether they're an online entrepreneur, whether they're a tech founder, whether they're in a startup, in sales, whatever it may be. And especially with COVID, how do we do this when we're on video all the time? So I started and created what I call performative speaking. And that ultimately led to like a live online course that I ran recently. It's led to a lot of consulting work and other areas of that. And that's what brings me here today is to help people become better speakers, communicators, and storytellers through kind of my experience as a trial lawyer. All right. So there's a ton to unpack there, of course. (laughs) One of the things that I really heard in that description that you were giving us is you are a trial lawyer. And I think most of us, the general population out there, we don't have a lot of experience with trial lawyers. You know, we're used to estate lawyers helping us with our will, you know, contract lawyers taking care of that business contract for, you know, your course, for example, right? And I don't know about everyone, but my experience with lawyers is much more in like, okay, you just plopped a bunch of legalese in my lap. Let me try and figure out what was going on here. And you are given your history and your background and obviously what you're talking about here, you are 100% in the opposite stance. You you were talking about using words to connect rather than to set up a wall between you and people. 100% true. I am not your typical lawyer. In terms of trial lawyers, the amount of cases I have tried at this point probably puts me in the top 1% of 1% of all trial lawyers in the United States. It is essentially me getting a case and working on it and strategizing on it for years to try to put the pieces in the right place, to try to set up my moves, see the counter moves that are coming against the other other side. And then ultimately we get into a courtroom and that's where we get you know 80, 100, 120 people coming in who are complete strangers, know none of the facts, don't wanna be there. I've gotta start talking to them, start laying kind of my foundation And then you go through the entire trial process, right? And it's very similar to what you see on like law and order. And in fact, when I was in child abuse, it's very similar to law and order SVU. You're dealing with a lot of the people you see in the show Mindhunters. And that's the world I live in where what I call it is it's a combination of human chess to get there and human chess and strategy in the courtroom. But it's also a game of competitive storytelling because we are trying to connect with our audience and our audience in this case being a jury and convince them that we're right. And the difference versus most people is there's an opponent. Someone's objecting to me. Somebody's telling their own side. And so this is really where it comes down to competitive storytelling and using our words in a way to connect emotionally. And this is actually one of the things that I love about your podcast name. I'm trying to convince the jury that they should know, like, and trust me. And I think there's just an incredible power in that. So when we're talking about competitive storytelling, which is a fantastic phrase, by the way. But when we're talking about that, you know, there's a lot of noise in our online world. And yes, we are in the era of COVID and everyone's, you know, 
making fun of the most overused phrase, hey, can you send me a Zoom link this year? And you know, this is just kind of the world that we're in. But with all of that noise and with all of those opportunities for in-person connection just disappearing at this point, at least, how are you using that competitive storytelling in a way that works today, that makes sense in today's world? So competitive storytelling, I mean, really, it just boils down to understanding what moves people how to connect with them. And that really is this emotional aspect. And the beautiful thing about stories is it allows us to create both credibility and likability at the same time. And it's one of the easiest ways when you're online and we're on this Zoom link or we're on a Skype link or whatever it is, it's an easy way to connect and still bring that human emotion even though a screen separates us. Because everyone loves a good story. And we know this is true because look at us watching television and movies all the time. The screen doesn't stop us from feeling emotions when we're watching those shows or those movies. The same is true when we're on Zoom. We can tell really engaging stories that demonstrate our credibility, but at the same time make us really likable to the person we're talking about because stories are engaging. And it's just built into the human DNA, which is why translating my competitive storytelling background into the world of Zoom has been this really natural transition and way to connect with my audience, whatever that audience may be. So what are the first steps to do that in translating that to the online world, whether that's, you know, a Facebook Live or, you know, Instagram story, what have you? That's perfect. So I think there are three things that you always need to think through before you go on to a Facebook Live, a webinar, a Zoom, whatever it is. You need to, first off, know what your goal is from that event. The second thing you always need to know is what emotion do you want your audience to feel? And the third thing you need to know is what is the one idea or what I call the theme. You could also think of it as like a slogan, but what's that one central idea that if they walk away with this, I'll consider it a success. And the reason we do that one, two, three is that first part, what is my goal? That really allows you to figure out what the emotion, what the central idea should be, because you're essentially trying to get to that goal. Once we have a goal, we can reverse engineer. The emotion and the, the theme really work together. And what that essentially allows you to do is create an anchor point for your audience so that they can remember what you said. They're going to remember that one main idea and they're going to remember how it made them feel. And so those are really the three questions you need to be thinking through and preparing before you ever go on a, a webinar a Facebook Live, an Instagram Live, whatever medium you're choosing, you should always go through that process. All right. So one, two, three makes a lot of sense, obviously, nice and easy to remember. So when you're preparing for this, let's go a little meta here. You know, as you were preparing for this podcast interview, you said, okay, I want to explain to people why this is an excellent tactic for them to include in their business. I want them to feel what? Were you having the goal of having people feel like they have hope for how they could put this into their own world? Where were you in this whole process for this? Perfect. I love that. First off, you went meta. I find that many of my podcast appearances end up going meta. <laughs> and I love being in this world. It's super fun. So let me kind of explain that. The, the goal when I'm looking at this podcast is your podcast is the no like, and trust podcast. That's, that's what we want people to be able to achieve. And we're talking about branding and content and all these sort of strategies. So my goal coming onto this is, okay, I know I've figured out who my audience is that I'm speaking to, and I'm thinking, what can I deliver to them? What can I achieve in this? That's both beneficial for them, but also beneficial for me. Because I think one of the first things we need to acknowledge is 
there's always some sort of give and take. There's always some level of selfishness and selflessness that play a role. So when I'm looking at this, my goal is to come on and help people understand the value of stories and the need to connect emotionally. That's my goal. Because if that is taken away, then my audience will have actually gotten some real value out of me. But at the same time, by having that as my goal, I'm trying to deliver this idea that, hey, I know what I'm talking about. I'm a person that can help you with this if you're interested in this idea. So that's kind of my goal, right, is I know that's what I'm shooting for. Now, emotion, what am I trying to create in them? I want to create that light bulb aha moment in them. Oh, that's how you do this thing. I want them to feel this just like spark of inspiration of I finally see it. The clouds have lifted. The fog is gone and I can see that beautiful Golden Gate Bridge now. And it, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. I want to be a part of that. That's the emotion I'm trying to, to think through and to create in a talk like this. And then the last part, right, is the central theme. And that would really be just the importance of stories, that stories are in the human DNA. And the more we can use those, the more credible, the more likable you're going to be. And it's going to translate in a whole bunch of other tactics as well if we get into that portion. I love that. Okay. You did such a beautiful job answering that. You made me very, very happy. So thank you. Because one of the things I've talked about here a lot are, you know, dotted lines. And, you know, wherever you are and wherever your audience member is, your job is to make the dotted line between you and them as straightforward as possible. And using storytelling in a connective, emotional way is a fantastic way to do that, of course. But you're you're not just saying that. You're actually giving us the how. Yeah, you know, break it down into the one, two, three. Figure out this, figure out this. Those two things go towards the goal. So this is great. And also, I have a question for you because when we're putting all of these things together, it's really easy to kind of focus maybe on that theme and emotion too much and kind of forget about the goal. So how are you weaving the goal in as you move through the story? Sure. So I think the goal to me is always kind of the thing that I start from and is always what I refer to kind of as like the the lighthouse, the, the, the bat signal that's going up that calls me and everything else that I'm doing towards it. So like as a speaker, I'm always thinking about what's my goal. Okay, this is my goal. Here's what I need to do. And so for me, the reason that that goal plays in the way that it does and the reason why it's the first step is because that's how I decide what emotion I'm trying to create and what theme I'm using. So they're actually all tied together because that process goes answer question one first, then answer question two and question three. By going in that step-by-step -step process, you're not going to lose track of your goal when you're talking through your story. And there are frameworks to help with storytelling. There are other ways to keep you on track. But just purely having a goal in mind will determine what your emotion is and will determine what your theme is. Because you can't create a theme, you can't create emotion if it doesn't relate back to your goal. If you know, hey, this is my goal, let's say for instance today, right? My goal is really to, to talk about the value of storytelling and how it allows people to connect with one another. Well, I, I can't then take like a very somber tone and create like a melancholy emotion in, in the audience. That wouldn't make any sense. So while I may have a great story to tell that would make people feel that, that doesn't bring any real value to what my goal is. So I throw th those stories away and I say, let me find some stories I can actually relate to that goal that I have. So that's really how I think about it.
So when you're talking about choosing the story, and I'm glad that we're moving in this direction, because I am fairly famous for saying I can probably make a story fit any theme I want it to. And, you know, little things happen to all of us, you know, throughout the day, little things that are of note, little things that were like, huh, well, that's something I remember. And and my, my favorite example of this is I have a nine-year-old, but back when he was, ooh, maybe five or so, we were driving home from the gym and it was midday. The road was fairly empty and I was stopped at a red light and this little red pickup with like, I don't know, like a lawnmower and a rake in the back comes flying up behind me. I look at it in the rear view. I'm instantly thinking, oh God, I better brace. I really thought an accident was about to happen, but nope, he moved into the next lane and flew straight through this red light intersection. And again, roads were pretty empty, so he just flew right through. But, you know, I had one of those, you know, very loud and dramatic, like, okay, size, you know, right afterwards. And my son was in the backseat, my five-year-old. And because of my reaction, right, he to this day talks about the story all the time. Hey, mom, remember that red pickup ran the light? And it's like such a thing in our house. It comes up at least once or twice, like a quarter. And I've talked about in, in one of my courses how I could use the story to probably describe anything. You know, like it's a great stop moment. It's a great, whoa, here's my attention moment. And especially when you're talking about how to do content online or, you know, how to bring people into your funnel and things like that, you always want to stop and get their attention. You always want to be memorable. And you're talking about memorable stories as being a great way to instill that know, like, and trust factor into your online presence. So when you're talking about, you know, choosing a story based on the emotion, it's almost a little bit different than the way I've described it in the past, which is, oh, I can make the story fit anything I want to. You're saying I want to choose a specific emotion and then pull a story that relates to that emotion. So first off, I love how you told that story. You did. I'm not surprised, but there were so many beautiful details in there that really set the scene and made it an emotional impact of a story. So like, first off, that was just great. I could see that entire story happening in front of me. And that's really what we want when we're talking about great storytelling. What you're saying, though, makes a ton of sense. So I think you certainly can use stories to fit into different settings and make them make sense for that emotion. I think if you have enough stories and the better you get at them, the easier it is to pick ones that are going to highlight that emotion in a stronger, more impactful way. Right. So I have a whole bunch of what I call go to stories where I can pull it out at any point and it's always going to be a crowd pleaser. But I know certain ones are sadder than others. Some are more exciting. Some are more adventurous. Some have more humor. And so I'm generally going to pick the ones that are more in alignment with the emotional impact I'm trying to create. Now, that doesn't mean I couldn't use those other ones. That I, There are stories I have that could fit anything I want to talk about. But by choosing very specific ones that have a stronger emotional impact in terms of their relation to what I'm trying to achieve, I tend to get better results. That doesn't mean that that's the only way to do it. That just means that's the way that I found to be most successful. I love that. So you have a story bank, essentially. 100%. And when you're talking and you have a particular goal, you can pull from that bank because you've you've probably used some of these stories many times and not so much practiced to where it's, you know, old hat or anything, but practiced enough that you can probably deliver them at will and do it in an excellent way and make sure that those emotions you're trying to elicit are the ones that come out. 
that's exactly what I've done is essentially create a, what I call an inspiration bank, but yes, memory bank, whatever you want to call it. In in a lot of ways, if you've watched the Harry Potter series, it's kind of like Dumbledore's Pensieve where he just takes them out, puts them in, and then can take them out whenever you want. I think of it in a lot of ways like that. And I tell a lot of people I work with, hey, like one of the first assignments I tell them is start creating a you know note on Rome or Evernote or whatever you use and just start writing stories. Because one of the things people don't realize is life is one big book of stories and like each day is like its own kind of page of that, that bigger story. And if you're listening to this podcast, like you've lived a life that you have stories, you have stories to tell. And sometimes it just takes sitting down at a computer, writing them out and saying, oh, wow, I didn't realize how many stories I did have. And then, like you said, you just keep practicing and you try them over and over again. And don't be afraid to repeat the stories because we all know we've all been there on Netflix and we're scrolling, scrolling. We say we're going to watch something new and we're looking and nothing just quite grabs us. And so we say, "Ah, I'm going to watch The Office for the fifth time because we know what we're going to get. We know we're going to enjoy it. And it's safe. And that's in a lot of ways what your go to stories end up being. You're that person where your friends are going to say, hey, hey, tell tell them about about this story that you told me recently. Like, I loved it. Tell tell this person. That's what we're trying to create in stories is these really engaging moments to connect and, again, be both credible and likable in a way that allows us to brag without it feeling like we're bragging. I like that phrase. That's good. We'll probably have to make a note of that. But a way to brag without feeling like you're bragging. And I think when it comes to ultimately closing down the story and then moving into the call to action, whatever that might be for the kind of platform or delivery that you are doing, that ability to brag without feeling like it's bragging is highly valuable because so many people struggle with transitioning from story to selling or story to call to action. And that's a really great way to do it. Yeah, it gives you that ability to just make that transition where your audience is so engaged because it's a story, right? They like hearing it. So by the end of it, they totally are bought in to you are both likable and you are credible. And by doing that, you can then move them into that next part of of the selling or the call to action of like, oh, no, Robbie does this for a living. He's a trial lawyer. I just heard this story. It was super engaging. Yeah, I'd love to, to learn from him. Right. And it's an easy then say, hey, like you love this story. Do you want to become a great storyteller? Do you want to learn the secrets of a trial lawyer for persuasion and all of these techniques? Do you want to be a competitive storyteller? Great. I have an offer for you. And it's just a simple way of moving it where it doesn't feel unnatural or really salesy. Well, I think that's one of the best things about using stories in your content, whether it's a straight sales letter or whether it's just an email talking about something. When you allow the story to take the bulk of the space or time or whatever it happens to be, right? It's just an easy line or two at the end that transitions them into that call to action rather than having to have this whole buildup or this whole close. You're you're allowing the story to do almost all of that work. Exactly right. Awesome. Well, I would love before we end for you to tell us one of your favorite stories. Sure. So recently, I I would say maybe about a year and a half ago. So it was September of 2019. It was one of the last trips I took because of COVID obviously came later that year, but I was in Japan. And when I was in Japan, I was traveling alone. I was in Tokyo and a typhoon was coming in and it was rolling in. And and that night I decided I was going to watch a typhoon roll in from the top floor of the Park Hyatt in Tokyo. Seemed like a really fun idea just to experience this. So I did that 
all that looked good, but Tokyo really just shut down. I was like, man, it, they're taking this a lot more seriously than I am. But I said, maybe that's because I'm from Houston. So in Houston, we get hurricanes. No big deal. I've lived through this. So I go home that night. I get some food. I'm eating in my, my hotel room because everything was closed. And I'm like, this isn't going to be a big deal. Nothing's going to be wrong. I'll wake up in the morning. And I was leaving that next morning. And I needed to get back because I had a trial starting that week. So this was on a Saturday. I needed to get back for my Monday trial. I'd been working while I was in Tokyo, so it wasn't like I was neglecting that. But I had figured it out where I could still make it all work. That next morning, I get up, and the typhoon was gone. Some leaves were on the ground, but it looked like everything was pretty normal. So I check my phone, Google, hey, are the trains still running? Because in Tokyo, in order to get to the airport, most people take the trains. It's pretty far outside of the city if you're going through Narita, and there aren't really roads put in place that people are using just because of the distance and Japan loves mass transportation. So Google says trains running fine. I'm like, cool, great. But I still want to be safe. So I'm like, I'm going to leave really early. I'll do some shopping at the airport. I'll relax. I'll go to lounge, whatever it is. So I start walking and I'm walking about 20 minutes to the train station and I'm, I'm dressed like I'm going to get on a plane, but it's September. So it's really hot. It's like 90, 95 degrees. I get to the train station. I'm sweating profusely, but I'm like, no worries. I'm going to get the airport. I'll change. I'll be good. I sit there waiting for the train. The train doesn't come. And I think, man, this is weird. Japan is known for always having the trains run on time. So I, I made a, a move. I went and talked to somebody who spoke enough English to tell me the train was not running. So I said, how can I get to the airport? They said, well, you can walk and find the bus. Where do I find that? I don't know. Look it up on your map. So I find it's at some hotel. I start walking again. I start sweating profusely again. I finally get to, to the hotel. I try to walk in and I get accosted by about three security guards all yelling Japanese at me. And I think to myself, what is going on? Like, I'm just like this, you know, tall white dude trying to walk into a hotel to get some help for the, the bus. Finally, someone from the hotel walks out and he says, sir, are you trying to get the bus? Yes, I am. So I go in. They tell me the bus has been shut down because it was an accident on the road. So it was taking five hours to get to the airport. At this point, I had five and a half hours to get there in order to make my flight. So I said, how can I get there? Well, you can maybe take a taxi because Ubers were shut down because of the accidents. So I said, great, give me a taxi. Finally get a taxi. I get in the taxi. It takes me four hours in the taxi while I'm nervously checking my phone to see if I'm going to make it. And we finally get to the airport and I can see it up ahead. It's about a quarter mile, half mile away from me. And we just stop, dead stop. I've got 30 minutes to make my flight. I've got a 60 pound suitcase in the back and I've got a driver who doesn't speak any English. I throw my credit card at him. He takes it, looks at me weird. I just open the door and I run out. I grab my suitcase and just start running. And I'm running quarter mile, half a mile to the airport entrance. I am just, again, dripping in sweat profusely. And I'm supposed to get on an international flight that's going to be 18 hours back to the US. I finally get to the airport and I'm freaking out. It's 15 minutes before my flight's about to leave. My suitcase needs to get checked. I don't know how that's going to happen. I've got a, a Wi-Fi portable device I need to drop off. I don't know how that's going to happen. I'm going to get charged for this. I'm thinking this is just an absolute nightmare. Not only that, it cost me more to take my taxi to the airport than it did for my entire round trip because of how long it took for that taxi to get there. When I finally get to the, the front desk, there are 10 Singapore Airlines people working it because nobody was able to make it to the airport on time. So they just had people hanging around. And I put my suitcase down. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm about to do something that I would not normally do, but I don't have a choice. I just started disrobing so that I could change. And all of a sudden I change. And as I'm pulling my shirt back over my head, the next thing I see and hear 
is muscle man, muscle man, as the, the people working the counter start flexing and pointing at me. And then I finally run to my gate as they're just screaming after me, muscle man, muscle man. And that is something I will never forget. I did make my flight. I did make it home. And I did win that trial. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Well, that story is giving me some heebie-jeebies because I used to photograph weddings and I would often fly to my wedding location. And there were definitely a few times that I was so incredibly grateful that I had always booked my flights two days before the wedding because I had a few of those situations that did not end so well. So that was uh, making me relive that just just a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, it was not the the most fun, but it made for a great story and experience and and something that I, I hope I never have to recreate again. Yes, indeed. Well, Robbie, it has been great listening to you. Where can people find you? And if they do want to proceed with working with you, how would they do that? So I'm most active on Twitter. My DMs are always open and that is just at Robbie Crab. That is the place people can find me. I give a lot of speaking advice on that platform. I also have my own website and that's just RobbieCrabtree.com. I run a speaking course called Performative Speaking. It is a live online course and people can sign up for that. They can always reach out and just ask me. And then I also do consulting work, helping founders, tech startups, and CEOs craft their stories to tell their message and get their idea out there to attract the right talent, funding, and ideal customers. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brittany. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That Japan story got my heartbeat going because I think we've all been in a similar, if not exactly the same situation. And I think it was a great demonstration of how you can use a story to elicit emotions. I think Robbie obviously knows what he's doing when he chose that story. If you guys enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would go and leave a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. These reviews not only help other people find the show, they help people understand what they're going to be getting, the kind of value that they can take from the show. Thank you so much, guys, and I'll see you next week.